When we get through with Tisco Reyes, me and you go to Roscoe Chicken and Waffle on me. Think about it now. That skull special, smothered in gravy and onions, side of red beans and rice and greens. <laughs> That's some good eating. Man. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 150. And my guest this week to talk about Quentin Tarantino's 1997, Jackie Brown, is Phil Rude. Phil, how are you this week? Doing good. 150. Congratulations, man. That's a milestone episode. That's yeah. A, that's a big number. It, it's a, kind of a crazy number when I think about it. That means I've been doing this almost three years and almost three years straight because I haven't missed an episode yet. That's crazy incredible, that man. That's, um, that's great. Good for you. Thank you. It's been a, a wild ride and I'm having so much fun doing it. I want to keep going and, and thank you for being here. This was going to be a different movie this week um, and I had some scheduling issues. I had to bump I'm still going to be talking about train spotting and my first time seeing that, and I have thoughts about it, but it's going to be in two weeks now. Um, so when I talked to you, we uh, you brought up a movie I also hadn't seen, Jackie Brown. It's the one Tarantino movie I've never seen, um, somehow. Yeah, I I remember. I don't remember when I heard you mention that, uh, but it was one that I I have a I have a wait you haven't seen list on my phone of, of <laughs> movies I can that either I haven't seen or that I've heard you mention that I would like to introduce you to, and uh, so I'm like, sweet, Jackie Brown has been on HBO Max, and I've been uh, uh, saving it. Uh, for you, Travis, and I, I was like, "Let's do it. Let's let's jump in." I love this movie, and it's one of those that I kind of love. Um, it's it's what I feel is like a Tarantino dark horse. You know, it's not a movie that people talk about in his canon, and I love to t- encourage people to watch this movie because I think it is really like a sleeper great movie of his. So that is a great way to put it because I had not seen this movie. Uh, so I saw Reservoir Dogs, not in theaters, but I saw it uh, when I was in high school. A friend of mine had a, a VHS copy of it. I'd actually read the script before I saw the movie. Uh, a friend oh, cool. of mine had a copy of the script. A bunch of us read it back and forth and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'd seen that. I'd seen Pulp Fiction. Um, I remember going to theaters to see Kill Bill, both Volume 1 and Volume 2, Um and, and all of that, but for some reason, Jackie Brown hit it, the perfect moment where I just, I didn't see it. Now, looking at the numbers, I'm not alone there. It didn't exactly do gangbusters. I don't know if it had a huge release or not. I remember ads for it. I remember marketing. Um, right. Uh, but it was only, I mean, it was a $12 million budget, and I think it only made like $36 million, uh, or something. So, I mean, it, it well made its money back, um, as most Tarantino films do, but I don't think it was like this huge didn't have the same kind of like buzz that Pulp Fiction had. Right. And I don't know why that is other than sort of a Tarantino hangover from it, it being the movie released after that, because it just, I just don't understand. It's got an incredible cast. We're going to talk about it for sure. 
Um, the one thing about this movie that I did learn over the years, and when I was watching it, I was paying extra attention to this, is it is the only Tarantino film that is not based on an original script he wrote, but it's an right. adaptation. It's a, it's a it's a brilliant collaboration. Yeah, it's so... Um, um, it is an adaptation of Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. And, right. And go ahead, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just, I think a lot of the response to this was uh, he had done two gangster movies, do two crime movies, mm-hmm. and this was his third film and his third crime movie. Yeah. Uh, fourth, if you count uh, True Romance being a, uh, but he didn't direct it, but it was his script and everybody yeah. kind of knew. Um, but, and I think the fact that this was, it was just getting compared to Pulp Fiction, and this doesn't have the weird editing of Pulp Fiction, you know, the the nonlinear editing, these things that had become Tarantino hallmarks were not in this. And I think a lot of the early buzz on this movie was like, it's just not as good as Pulp Fiction. It's more of a straightforward gangster story. And... Uh, everyone kind of slept on the fact that he turned it into this black exploitation uh, tribute, and that it has this great cast, and and that it really is just this super entertaining uh, caper film. You know what I mean? Abs- absolutely. So yes, that was one thing I noticed right away was it was linear. It didn't have that that nonlinear thing that Tarantino's so good at doing. It did it at one point, and and it yes. actually threw me. When he started doing that in the movie, because like I wasn't the Rashomon thing, the the yeah the three different angles of the thing, yeah yeah. So once that started happening, it took me a second, and I'm like, oh okay, now we're doing a little Rashomon, now we're doing a little Tarantino. Yeah, I get what's happening, but it took a second for that to settle in because I had spent the first whatever hour and a half, I guess, yeah. of the movie <laughs> all playing out like a normal linear progression, and so. That hit it, it. It threw me off. I got back used to it, and boy, I tell you what, I had a good time with this movie. Uh, I had a ton of fun. It is entertaining. It, calling it not as good as Pulp Fiction, I understand that. I can get why people would say that, especially audiences coming out of it being like, eh, "Yeah, but it's not. It's not as good. It's not the same thing." But it's it's really well done. This is like calling it a sleeper for Tarantino. That's about as. Uh, as good a description as I can give. This is as good, and and sure, it could be recency bias because I just finished watching it yesterday and I watched it again today, but right. it's as good as anything else he's done. Like, Oh, I agree. I, I, I think a lot of my favorite Tarantino movies, and I love almost all of them. I am an unapologetic fan mm-hmm. of, of Quentin Tarantino, but... Some of my favorites are the ones that I think get left out of the conversation. Uh, Hateful Eight, Inglorious Bastards. These things that are a little more low-key. They don't stand up as much as Pulp Fiction and Django do. But I think they're every bit as well-made and well-put together. And I think this was his kind of first example of something that audiences didn't accept right away. But really should have and i i think um just in staying on that comparison we can put that together with like around the same time as this maybe a year before uh it's the same time period like casino came out and everyone compared it to goodfellas and it's Mm -hmm. like yes it has the same people in it yes it has a lot of the same plot points but it is 
also its own thing. And it, yes. it, it deserves to be held up on its own merit instead of being torn down for not being Goodfellas, you know? And, and I feel like Tarantino is kind of falling under the same, the same weight with this one. Uh, I'm going to shoot down your, your recent viewing bias <laughs> and just say like this movie holds up. I watch it every few years and I really, I, I never fail to walk away from this movie loving it sometimes even more, you know, it, it takes a big jump forward. Uh, I, I think this is just a great movie on every level. Yeah. And Captain Temerity in the chat brings up, it's not as surprising as Pulp Fiction was probably because it's a more straightforward as a story. <coughs> right. And I do think that plays into it. It is very, because it's, it's not Tarantino making up a story out of whole cloth. He's adapting a novel. So he's got a story he's working with. But he still makes it his. You could tell. You could have told me this was an original that he just came up with, and I'd believe it because it still feels like a Tarantino story. Um, he did a good job with that. Plus, I loved how, and I was reading about this. Apparently, uh, one of the you know uh, one of the big complaints about Pulp Fiction was how violent it was, and so right. there's there's definite violence in this, but almost all of it happens off screen. Or is it's framed not graphic in, in the same way? Yeah, exactly. So, like, uh, you know, the the big ones that I noticed were um, Mel getting shot happens off camera, and you never see her. Um, right. Uh, Beaumont getting shot happens basically off camera. You never see him. You don't uh, see it up close, right? Yeah. Like all that, which I kind of enjoyed because it shows that Tarantino doesn't have to rely on just his only. Uh, the tricks that he knows and and that kind of shock value in order to be entertaining. He can have the idea of that going on and still be able to build, you know, uh, a tense situation around it. Plus it just lets your brain go. Cause now you're wondering like the, the scene where he opens up the um, trunk with De Niro. Uh, it's uh, Sam Jackson and De Niro. Oh yeah. And he opens up the trunk and it's just, all you have are the reactions of what's going on. And you got Ordell, who's just cold, stone-faced. And even Lewis, um, De Niro's character, he barely, you know, he, he reacts, but it's it's so subtle. And so now you're, you're sitting there like, God, did you shoot him in the face? Like, what did he, where did he shoot him? What, what, what are they looking at? And it's just making your brain turn. And I, I love that. Plus, nobody you, you does. You know what's in the trunk, but you don't know the details of what's in the trunk. And exactly. it, it does. It, it makes it, it turns, it turns your brain over. Yes. Um, and nobody does a trunk shot like Tarantino. He, he, I mean, I think it's in just about every movie. He's got some sort of an up angle from if there's a car, yeah. it's inside the trunk or somebody standing by an open trunk. Um, you're looking, it, you're looking into the trunk of an old seventies car yep. every, every single time, every so, time. And, uh, oh, so good. But the, the cast in this movie as the names were coming up on the screen and then I'm seeing them in the movie and all this, it's just one after the other of, of talk about an, a director that can get so much out of everyone he brings in and can resurrect careers. So, so you think about sure. a couple of years earlier, he basically resurrects John Travolta's career. Yep. And then he does this movie in 97 and he brings in Pam Greer who, Number one, I love the fact that it's Pam Greer because in both of his movies prior to this, he's mentioned her. And so then yeah. to have her in the movie is just awesome. Plus, it's Pam Greer. I mean, it's Pam. She's so good. Oh my God. She's, she's so good in this. Yeah. And, and 
her the character of Jackie now in the novel the character is white so he changed that but it also fit kind of what he was going for in terms of like a tone because as you mentioned yeah. it's 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 play, paying homage to those black exploitation films Foxy Brown and uh, Coffee and um, those kinds of things that Pam Greer had done in the seventies right so and and I love the story. <laughs> That uh, she went in for her audition and he had a bunch of posters of her movies on the uh, walls in his office. And she's like, did you put those up because I was coming over? And he's like, you know, actually I thought about taking them down because you were coming over. I didn't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> Old nerd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and you know, trivia, you always got to take with a grain of salt. I buy that one 100%. Because that's I, a, I do too. Yeah. That's a Tarantino he, thing. <laughs> he's, a, uh, he's a, he's a giant, uh, he's a giant fan of of TV, of cinema, of from all different schools, you know, like mm-hmm. he references uh, Hong Kong movies like The Killer in this movie because yep. he's like a huge fan of The Killer. So he's just going to and it's like, I don't I don't doubt for a second that he is a huge fan of Foxy Brown. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, because, you know, he does name drop it in these other movies. And of course, he's going to take Pam Greer and be like play this character, I want to flesh her out more and make her more of a thing and, and uh, you know, weave it into this Elmore Leonard novel um, so that you are an actual person. But that's the gist of who she is. And she really, it is wild to see a, a black exploitation character get fleshed out into a fully three-dimensional character. And I'm glad that she was able to do that. Absolutely. Now, how she didn't even get a nomination for any awards for this movie is a crime. I don't know. I don't understand that at all, that she didn't even get nominated for anything, let alone win awards, because she just nails it. She's the title character in the film who doesn't appear after the opening credits for another 25 minutes. Yeah. But then she just takes the movie over and she's playing everybody against everyone else except for Max Cherry. She's, he's really the only one that she's completely honest with the whole time. Um, More or less, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's pretty straightforward with Max. Also also great, Robert Forster. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, thought, I thought, and I thought the two of them together were just sort of like, uh, you know, you're kind of rooting for them as a, as a couple and as a, a partnership in this yeah. movie. And I think you don't do that if they don't play these characters correctly. And they both, I think, just nailed it pitch perfect on on every level. I, I just I had so much fun watching them. They did. Their and chemistry is great. Their chemistry is great. And and talking about resurrecting careers, this helped both Pam Greer and Robert Forrester, who neither of whom had really been like starring in anything for a while. Right. Um and and I think that that helped their performances because you got um, Jackie Brown is, you know, she's 44 year old stewardess who can't get a job with a major airline anymore because of a criminal past. Right. Getting hit before. And while obviously Pam Greer doesn't have that background, she can kind of pull from this idea of I was on top for a while. I was doing really well. Now I, I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of side work and small, pro- smaller projects and I'm not at that level anymore. So she can kind of draw from that and play that role, and it feels natural. And Forrester's sort of the same way. He's Max Cherry's this fifty-six-year-old bail bondsman, 
And I love right. the the moment where he's talking about he's written 15,000 bonds in his time as a bail bondsman, like just insane numbers. And so both of them have this, a little bit of this weight of the world thing going on, a little bit of this, like, I've been at this for so long and I'm just tired of it. And Jackie sees an opportunity. And I love when she, she talks to Max about it. And she's like, look, what would you do? You know, could you walk away from, yeah. from it with, you know, this kind of thing? planting that seed and sort of seeing how he's going to react to it. But he, he's kind of at that point in his life where he's just like, I don't care anymore either. Like I've been doing this for so long. I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) Right. Right. He's burned out. Uh, What does he say? He's got like uh, 19 years bail bondsman. And you kind of get the sense that he was like a cop before that. So he's got like this, this long 20 to 30 year history of, of dealing you know, up to his ass in, in all of this, you know, putting people in jail, getting people out of jail, dealing with, with criminal types and he's tired of it. And I just, I love when she plants that seed and asks him, what would you do? And he almost does everything but answer the question because you can kind of tell like he want, he knows it's wrong. He (laughs) knows he's supposed to say no, but he, he is kind of thinking about it. And I just, I love the way he plays that. Well, and I like the way his story unfolds in that you find out after the fact that the night he met her later on that night, he had the epiphany that he just wants to be done being a bail bondsman. Right. And that he wants to move on and do something else. So it's like that night he has that realization. And the next day he's talking with her and within you know, not that long, she's planting these seeds in his head and he's already had these conversations with Ordell at this point um, where he knows Ordell is into some shady stuff, but he, he's not a cop, so he's not going to do anything about it because it's not right. worth it to him. Um, and I just liked, I liked how his story unfolded over time and how like he got to be the one to walk out with all the money from the store and just that moment where he's standing there with the car door open and he looks back at the door of the store <laughs> and just that little bit of a smile and he gets in and then the slow, I love the can like Tarantino does a great job of, uh, of, of giving shots, some, you know, time to breathe. And that shot is great because when he gets into the car, the framing of it leaves it. So it's just this empty space above the car for a second before the camera swoops down and kind of pulls back. And you see him right. in the car as he drives away. And I like that moment there where it's like, he's there, now he's gone. Oh, now we're going to follow him, leave. Like, there's something with the way that's composed that just, like, sticks with me a lot more than if they had immediately moved the camera down and hadn't waited for that that beat or two of just Show kind of the empty, empty space. space yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think Tarantino and whoever he gets as his DP on all of his films, they really... He knows what he wants and his DP knows how to deliver it. And he does these long takes. He does like these tracking shots, the, uh, uh the shot through the parking lot of, of Bridget Fonda and, um, and De Niro looking for the car, yep. you know, that, that is all over the place and it follows it. And it, it gives you that frantic motion and you get in their headspace through the way that is in the same way, this long shot of watching, Max leave the parking lot, the big empty space, the slow pan down, the follow out of there. It gives you a sense of closure that that he did it. He got, you know, and and 
I they're able to communicate so much with these shots, and and I think there's a, a definite language to it that they understand and they're able to to get across. And I I just I love the long shot that Tarantino makes because I think it communicates so much. Absolutely, and and before I forget about it, it's Guillermo Navarro that did the direct was the director of photography okay. on this. He has done. Uh, he's worked with Guillermo del Toro quite a bit. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth being one that he shot. Uh, for Great, Guillermo, beautiful for Toro. movie. So uh, Hellboy two. He worked on um, Zathura. Was a good one. Um, okay, it's yeah. an interesting one. Yeah, he's worked with Del Toro on quite a few: The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, Hellboy Two, Pacific Rim. So a lot of that, a lot of his uh, stuff there for a while. And yeah, so he's definitely worked with some visionaries, um, very sure. different styles. But but I like the way he shot this. And you're right, Tarantino just has this ability to like get the right people to make what he's he's su- he's such a good director at at collaborating and finding while while it's still having his fingerprints all over it. Right. And, and yeah, I, I think love. that just no comes from him knowing so much what he wants. Mm-hmm. He knows oh, what he yeah. wants and he knows how to tell people what he wants whether he, I don't know if he storyboards it uh uh you know meticulously or if he is just able to communicate that or if they just are doing that thing where they just run it over and over and over again until, you know, the whatever the <laughs> magic is, that Kubrick thing, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's it's great. And even in this, that is, it takes place in such a pedestrian setting. It takes place all over L.A. in bars and in houses and stuff. And these shots just look beautiful of malls and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like... Just totally pedestrian stuff, and and there's just so much in the in the language of the camera. It it's true, and that's the type of thing that Tarantino does, and whoever his director of photography is for that movie. Um, the Coen brothers have a way of making mundane spaces yeah. look amazing as well, whether they're working with Roger Deakins or not. Like there's something in taking, you know, the the way they make a bowling alley look in The Big Lebowski, or the way they make. Uh, Right. The way Tarantino and his DP work on the lighting for different situations, like the bar that um, that Jackie oh, and Max go to, where it's all red lit, <laughs> the red bar, yes. like it's such a a harsh difference from everything else in the movie. But you, and you remember it, and well, and the bar that uh, Ordell meets her in, yep. uh, that kind of run down. They're all like these seventies looking bars, these mm-hmm. leftovers. Yes, uh, but. There's no mistaking the feeling. You know that place. You can You've been s- to that place. You can smell what that bar you can is smell like. It. Absolutely. It, it smells like 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 stale drinks and cigarettes, and yep. there's a little despair in there. Um, yeah, it absolutely. You it know what all like those crying. places are. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a sad place, but you know that place, and and they showcase it so well, so mm. that. It feels like a familiar neighbor neighborhood bar because it probably is, but yeah. nothing gets lost in the translation of that. It's it's really well done. Yeah, and he does such a good job of like I've never been to L.A., but watching his movies, especially, he has such a love affair for the look of L.A. Yeah, that that I always feel like, even though I know it's not going to be like that when I go if I ever make it out there now, because I'm looking at L.A. through the lens of the '90s and Quentin Tarantino. Right. That's what I feel like I'm going to see when I go there is is these streets and these kinds of things and I just there's there's something so cool about that. Um 
So yeah, I really, really dug that. Uh, you know, again, Robert Forrester and, and Pam Greer, just their chemistry is so good together. They work so well to, uh, in their scenes and in their scenes where they're not together. Like there's that split screen where, um, Ordell goes to Jackie's apartment the night she gets out of jail. So good. Yeah. And you've got, it's the split screen is just Robert Forrester's face as he's driving. He has no clue. She took the, the pistol out of his glove compartment. Nothing. It's just him driving along with just that kind of kind of wistful look on his face because he's sort of he's, crushing on her he as, is as absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's so great to have that split screen with a silhouette darkened image of uh sam jackson putting his hands around pam greer's throat he's threatening her but you you know he's threatening her but you don't know exactly how he's threatening her because of the way they shot they did right. all the lighting uh and that's the only audio that you're hearing like i just oh that like that's burned in my brain now, and I've only, and I've seen this movie twice. I'm going to be rewatching it. I can already tell you that it's going to start going into regular rotation for me because it's that good. Um, that's great. But I just love that, and I haven't even st- I haven't even talked about Sam Jackson hardly at all yet in in this movie. And I mean, he's coming off of playing Jules a couple of years earlier, which is a very yeah. different role from this because Ordell is a bad dude. He is more uh, Sam Jackson has never been scarier than he is in this movie. More menacing. Uh, You really believe he's dangerous for a number of reasons in this movie. You believe he's dangerous because he's so charismatic and he's so like just on the ball with what he wants and what he's trying to do while everyone around him kind of doesn't know. But I feel like he's not, he's also not, necessarily uh the sharpest guy no and he he's unpredictable in that way he's just he's that it, it is he's relentless and he is charming but you also know he can turn on a dime but you're never sure what is going to set him off turning and i think that is this this combination of elements plus it being Sam Jackson, who is just intimidating on his own. Uh, and that that wicked uh, <laughs> hair he's sporting through this, which oh. just, you know, oh. it, all his I don't give a fuck, um, you know, uh, fashion in this is also like, yeah, this guy doesn't care. This guy uh, swings a stick, you know, and uh, it, it just makes him terrifying to me. It does. And he never he doesn't yell either. He never has to get demonstrative with anybody. He's always calm. Like the whole scene that leads up to um, Beaumont. So what I like about yeah. that, number one, Chris Tucker, very small yes. part, not on screen for very long, but it's Chris Tucker and he's great. He's great for the small amount of time he's there. But that whole scene, there's so many opportunities for, for that to go full Sam Jackson, right? Because to yeah. me, Sam Jackson is one of Hollywood's great yellers. It's sort of oh, like yeah. uh, Gene Hackman was that, right? You can if you got a if you had a moment where you could have Gene yeah, Hackman start yelling at somebody, you had Gene Hackman yell at them because he just had this way of doing it. And I always wanted there, to, it never happened, but I always wanted to have that scene in a movie that was Sam Jackson and Gene Ew. Hackman yelling at each other, because I feel like be insane. <laughs> whatever camera they would use to film that would just explode because it couldn't handle that. But, that poor sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Everybody take your cans off. They're doing the scene. Yeah, yeah, you're, 
ears bleeding you know, all over his head. But he never he that's never sad. goes to that. That's the best part about it. That's what's so menacing about it is I'm watching it and I know he's capable of doing that. So I'm waiting for that moment. I'm waiting for that that the fuse to, right. to hit down and for him to just blow up. And he never does. And so then he calmly gets into the car and he takes forever putting them damn gloves on. And yeah. it wasn't until the second time I watched it when I, I had the realization, like, wait a minute, that's a different car than what he was driving earlier. Like, I, I, it didn't dawn on me the first time. It's not his daily driver, right. It's yeah. not his daily driver. And then for him to basically just drive around the block and <laughs> get out. And, and I'm just, oh, it's so, you're right. Like, intimidating is the way to put it, but he's just, he's so ferocious in this movie without having to get demonstrative. Uh, even the way he just talks very casually about hitting women mm-hmm. like it's it's almost worse than if they had just shown him hitting bridget Fon- he talks about it like oh yeah when he first says like don't make me put a boot in your ass uh, you're like is he just is this just an idle th- not that that's okay but like is this just like an idle threat that he throws around like ralph cramden you know mm-hmm. uh but you know when <laughs> de niro shoots her and he's like why didn't you just hit her you know, yeah. I mean, it's just the way he speaks about it. It is like, oh, this guy is, you know, you understand it already, but it just reinforces like this guy is a, a very, very dangerous piece of garbage who has no qualms about using violence against a man, a woman, a child, anybody to get what he wants. Yeah. And and it just puts this shadow over him that is just like a quiet terrifying which is a completely different kind than mm-hmm. seeing it you know and and seeing how it uh seeing it evolve over the course of the narrative too because when you at first you're thinking yeah idle threats are kind of normal normal threatening manner but you're seeing how like how he deals with Jackie and Jackie just doesn't take it from him like she's just reached a point where she doesn't right. care either uh so that's that's another thing that may, it, that you can only have Pam Greer playing that character. Like, there's only so many actors that could go toe to toe with Sam Jackson, and I'm going to be as afraid, if not more, of them. Pam Greer is one of them. Um, right. I did love the story of she had auditioned for a role in Pulp Fiction that ultimately went to Rosanna Arquette, uh, which was oh wow the girlfriend of um, the, the drug dealer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, Eric Stoltz, yeah. And part of the reason she didn't get that role was that Tarantino didn't think anyone would believe, uh, would find it believable for her to get yelled at like that by Eric Stoltz. <laughs> and that's another one where I'm like, you know what? I 100% believe that Tarantino would say that because I can't buy Eric Stoltz yelling at Pam Greer and still having like both his lips. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh, it. it uh, that scene plays out totally differently. <laughs> it does. Yeah, that is a very different power dynamic to that relationship. Um, but even Pam Greer in this, she plays her her no nonsense thing. She plays that quietly too. Oh yeah, she, she never mm. yells. She never gets. But even when she threatens him, when she has Max's gun, which I think that is the when you just hear it cock and then the, the split screen goes away and and it's all been explained. She has the gun. You know, she's like, she doesn't yell. She doesn't scream. She says, take your hands off me and get over, you know, sit down. She puts him against the glass. She gets forceful with him, but it's never like in a violent way. It's never in a loud yelling way. And I think 
it's it's Sam Jackson doing that. It plays as menacing. Uh, Pam Greer doing that plays as cool. Yeah, and I think that's that's the Elmore Leonard of this, where mm-hmm. uh, Tarantino heroes are all about style and being eccentric, and Elmore Leonard, who also does Pulp, which is why I think this is is the perfect matchup. Elmore Leonard's heroes are all about being cool. Yep. And just like the coolest MFer on the block. And all his villains are about being incompetent, stupid clowns, which is also how this plays out. Yep. And seeing Tarantino take these Elmore Leonard elements and plug them into his style, it, it all just plays out perfectly in the way these characters come across. And, and Pam Greer, I think, just solidifies all of that. And I think she's the linchpin of all of it. Absolutely, because that scene with her and Sam Jackson, again, it could play out very differently, but once she gets him to sit down, she turns the light back on, she sits down and they just have a conversation. She's like, look, yeah. this is how it's going to go. And she's not threatening. She's like, you tried to kill me and I get it. She was like, no, <laughs> yeah. no big deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, it's just, no, it's so, it's amazing. And I, I also, I want to talk about De Niro because watching this, okay. something something that I was thinking about while I was watching this is, this is such a different feeling Robert De Niro yeah. in this movie because I'm so used to him as either the the slick criminal, right, a la Heat or, uh, you know, movies yeah. like that, or he's playing uh, like in Ronin where he's kind of the CIA agent, he's the good guy, and he's always on top of everything. He's very... He's the man with the plan all the time, always. no matter what he's doing. It's it's that, or he's you know Until completely off movie. the rails, yeah, or or it's completely off the rails like Rocky and Bullwinkle, but that's a whole other story. Oh shit, yeah, um, that's. <laughs> but like he's he's always the man with the plane, and in this he's just kind of an idiot. He's, and, he's so dumb, and I he loved plays it, it so well. It's he's great, so good. Oh my, like I I love seeing because I already like De Niro as an actor. I've always sure. liked De Niro as an actor. He's got a great screen presence. But this showed a different side of him where he can still, like, he still seems like he's pretty cool, but he's also just, the dude's just sort of there getting high a lot. Yeah. And just kind of not really knowing what's going on. And he's then real quiet. Yeah. Uh, and, and just not real bright. He's fresh out of jail and kind of readjusting. He, like, he doesn't know what anything is. You yeah. Know? You know, <laughs> he doesn't know how a key fob works because he's been in jail for four years. And, yeah. and you know, like, and he's just, just, uh, you know, he just kind of wanders through these scenes. And it's, it's so funny. Like, it, it is really, really funny. It really is. Like, the second <laughs> time watching it was even better than that first time because the first time I'm just absorbing everything. And now I'm like, yeah, watching all these little things. And you're right. He's just like, He's like somebody's not quite their uncle and he just sort of wanders into a yeah. scene and he's he's there <laughs> but he doesn't really have a purpose for being there. He's just like I'm just going to sit on the couch here and oh you you want to hand me the bong sure I'll, I'll light up why not. Hey, you got a beer. And then during the 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 actual like heist moment the ca- the caper like he wants so much to be on the ball, right? So he's got his hair slicked back yeah. now and he's he he's shaved so it's just the mustache and he doesn't have any of the stubble and he's looking he's he's on the ball and he wants to be important and then as soon as they leave the department store he's lost and he has no idea where the van is and i just love that like it was so well done and it's de niro so he just 
he just goes for it. Yeah. Um, and I, I did read that he had some trouble with Tarantino um, in terms of they kind of butted heads a little bit, which I think is probably more of like De Niro being a method actor and Tarantino kind of I have a I have to have this feeling like Tarantino didn't give him much to work with. I don't know. It's it's hard. Yeah, to, it's hard I, to say, like, because there's not... they're coming from such completely different places, I think it, it, mm-hmm. that it, it's it's bound to. I mean, somehow it turned out really well. That character's hilarious and great, but I I can see how they probably had some trouble getting there. And that's is this the only time they've worked together? As far as I know, yes. And, you know, it's possible that uh, they can look back on it and probably have fonder memories of it than maybe when it was in the moment. I know sure. I just recently saw Tremors, and um, while I was discussing that for another show, I watched a documentary, and Kevin Bacon talked about, you know, he had a great time making Tremors, but it was also a rough time for him personally, so it was like... It took him till a few years later to really appreciate what had been right. working on that right. movie. And I kind of wonder if, if there's something like that as De Niro's gotten older, as Tarantino's gotten older, where he's probably softened his stance on it. But when you're in the moment, it's always tougher. Um, but you don't always have to have a great working relationship for a movie to work out well. Uh, Bringing Out the Dead is a movie that I love to talk about a lot with Nicolas Cage because I think it's a really well-done movie. And he's gone on record saying it was one of the worst, you know, filmmaking experiences for him because they were filming it in New York City in February at night. So it's like everything was cold (laughs) and he's trying to make this movie. He's miserable, but it's amazing. It's so well done. Him and Scorsese just did an amazing job with that. So it's like sometimes that just happens. That works out. Um, But man, De Niro's just just so I love the scene with him and Jackson in the bar where they're talking yeah. because it's that same thing where he's kind of clueless about it. He's like, you know, is she your girlfriend? Like they're having this conversation and you got, you got Ordell is like, no, I know who Mel is. He's like, yeah, but how do you trust yeah. her? He's like, I don't trust her, but I know her. And like Lewis just can't wrap his brain around that concept where Ordell's like, how is this that hard to figure out? Like, no, I don't trust her, but I know exactly what she's going to do. So, you know, that's as good as trusting her. It's a scene that, that, outlines Ordell's relationship to everybody around him. Yes. But other than that, it has nothing to do with anything else. It's just like a Tarantino conversation Mm -hmm. that's dropped in the middle of this movie. You could have done this movie without that and been fine, but it just is like, it's a, it's this nice character moment. And (laughs) I know it's unnecessary, but I still kind of like it being there. It's this, it's this fun scene between uh, these two actors that I love. Uh, kicking out dialogue about dysfunctional relationships and, um, and, and bad uh, partnerships. But it's, it, I don't know. It really works for me for some reason. There's a lot of that. Like it just, that's Tarantino does so well with conversations where he writes yeah. dialogue that, and I've mentioned this before, I think in the Pulp Fiction episode, probably that Tarantino writes dialogue that both feels incredibly authentic and at the same time, feels like it can only exist in a film. Yeah. You know, and, people don't really talk like that. But and, and yet, I have had conversations with people that sound exactly like that. So it's like this weird dichotomy. Uh, like, it shouldn't right. work, but it does. I, it's just what he does. Because you're right. People don't just talk like that normally, except in Tarantino's world. Because that's how but they he do talks. talk about trivial things like that. In, mm-hmm. in the same way, like Kevin Smith will 
will hammer that out, but it isn't, it doesn't flow in the same way that Tarantino does. It's just right. this incredibly trivial conversation. I mean, you, you look at that opening scene of Reservoir Dogs around the diner table mm-hmm. where they're talking about not tipping, where they're talking about Madonna songs. And yeah. it's just these, these uh, six middle-aged guys having conversation. It's Seinfeld. It's conversations about nothing. Yep. But they just, they flow in a way that you just go, okay, I'm going to go with this. And, and I appreciate the, the surreal nature of these conversations. And mm-hmm. Elmore Leonard does a lot of that stuff in his, in his novels as well. Um, you look at things that have been adapted from, from Leonard, like Justified. And you look at the way that the characters in Justified talk with this like Southern poetry. Yeah. And, and that's that stylized dialogue that comes with pulp. And, yes. and, uh, you know, it all just, again, it's, it's exemplified in this movie. Uh, and I, I can only attribute it over and over again to this being a collaboration between Elmore Leonard, who I don't know how involved he was. He is an executive producer on this movie. Uh, so I imagine he had some input, uh, but it was written by Tarantino. So I just, I love the collaborative nature of these two, uh, kind of pulp heroes mm-hmm. making this film together. What I read was that Tarantino had bought the option for this book for Rum Punch and two other Elmore Leonard's. He originally wasn't going to make this one. He was going to make one of the other two. And then he fell, he fell in love with the book all over again, reading it, decided to go with this one, started writing the script, made the changes and all that. And then what I read was that he was really nervous about the changes that he made. So he waited until kind of the last minute to, to, to present it to Elmore Leonard, who loved it, L- like thought right. it was, thought it was one of the best adaptations of his work and one of the better screenplays he's ever read. So yeah, I think that's kind of where the collaboration part of it goes as far as, as that is, yeah. but, but like th- that alone is enough. I mean, it's just, you're right. It's these pulp heroes and, and kind of just making, making these work like Tarantino can make a world that you, you almost want to live in, but you're kind of afraid of. And, um, <laughs> that's a really good way to put it, man. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it like, looks like fun, but I don't know how long I'd survive. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, <laughs> I, I know for a fact that I am Marvin in that world, right? I am, I am, like one shot in the face, <laughs> one wrong, one moment away from just being a greasy spot in the backseat of a car. And I get that. Like, that's where I am in that exact world. Either that or I'm the bartender in Pulp Fiction, right? I'm the one I'm that's Paul just like, and this is between you all. Yep, yeah, exactly. That's... Uh, and Captain Temerity, again, T- Tarantino's dialogue makes you feel like there's more action happening on the screen than there actually is. And that is uh, a thing that Tarantino does so well is he puts action into his stuff but his dialogue is the meat of what's going on. And there's so much happening there. He can make two people like everyone likes to talk about, Oh, uh, uh, what's his name from that did the West wing? Um, Uh, Sorkin, Sorkin, Sorkin. you know, Sorkin doing a walk and talk, uh, and how he puts that in everything. And he, he, he's the master of the walk and talk. Honestly, I'll say Tarantino can do a walk and talk as good and probably keep my attention better in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, the, the scene, the opening scene in Pulp Fiction, where it's just Jules and, um, uh, it's just Travolta and, and Sam Jackson walking down a hallway talking about foot massage. 
a foot massage. Yeah. And you're just like, um, you, you can't, you can't stop watching. You're just like, what is <coughs> in part because you keep waiting for what's going to happen. This is yeah. long drawn out. These, these five to 10 minute long dialogue scenes. You're like, something's gotta happen. Come on. And it's just more talking and it, you're riveted. You can't look away. I love that. Like, and that that helps uh, that you don't know where they're going. You know they're mm-hmm. going somewhere, and they say we should have shotguns. And you're like, what are they doing? <laughs> um, but he does it in. Um, I just rewatched the Hateful Eight, uh, and there's the scene where when they first get to Minnie's haberdashery, and they go in, and Kurt Russell is chained. He's handcuffed to um, Jennifer Jason Lee, yep. and he's dragging her around the entire. So you're getting the layout of of the outpost. You're getting to know all the characters and he's doing that. They're constantly moving and it's a one take shot all the way around. And it's just brilliant. It's Mm -hmm. it's there's action. They're doing things. He's making coffee. He's uh, criticizing everybody in there and what they're doing. He's trying to take account of the guns. And it's just like, dude, there is so much happening and you're not lost and you are not bored. And there's a real there's there is a real talent to that for sure. Yeah, and then you, you take the flip side of of a shot like that, and you think about the shot in this movie, where it's the morning that Max comes over to get his gun back from uh, f- from Jackie. I keep wanting to call her Foxy Brown, but it's Jackie Brown. <laughs> um, and it's a shot where they're having a conversation, and she's making coffee. Yep. And. For like three quarters of the shot, she's standing behind the counter and behind the cabinet. So you can't see her face really while she's making coffee and you're still having a conversation and the camera never moves. And yet I'm not bored with it. It's, it's this not quite fully lit kitchen that's mostly empty and it's like uh, just the outline of Pam Greer and she's making coffee. And yet I'm, I'm riveted because there's this slow conversation going on and you're learning about these two people. And it's just like, I don't, I, I don't even understand how to conceive of that at first in terms of like right. thinking up the shots and the pacing and the coverage. Like normally you would have, you know, you're taught in film school to have coverage and you show one actor and you have the other actor and you keep cutting between them and he doesn't do that. Or if he does, he does it very sparingly. And it's uh, almost all from Max's POV. Yeah. Like, it's 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 a coverage it's coverage of Max as he's talking, and then as he looks for an answer, he's only seeing the wall. And I, I don't know. I I think a part of that works because we've all been there. We've all mm-hmm. been to somebody's house, and they're making coffee and talking to you from the kitchen. Oh yeah. And you're just chilling and trying to not be awkward and and playing the getting to know you game. And again, I I put it at the feet of these two actors and the characters they've made that you are invested in these two characters. You've seen them have a drink together Mm -hmm. in the red bar, you know, (laughs) and you, you kind of just are invested in them by that point. And you want to see them uh, start to like each other. And and you, they're clearly from two different places. Oh, yeah. And, and, but you still see how they, they meet in the middle so well. And man, I can't say enough about just how much I love watching these two share scenes. Oh, it's so good. Also, I love that uh, the hair plug, the that whole description as he's talking about that, <laughs> that was something that Robert Forrester had done a few years earlier, 
And he brought that up, and Tarantino worked it into the script because he liked it so much. That's great. And and it's such a good moment because it's such a like it's the type of thing that you know most most men that would go through that wouldn't be so open with somebody they just met that you know yeah I did uh, surgery and got hair plugs or whatever whatever it is that he did yeah but he, he's comfortable with it and I love his rationale for it he's like I'm happy with it it made me feel better about myself I look in the mirror and I just see me. And I'm just like, that's such yeah. a great moment. And Robert Forrester deserved his Academy Award nomination for this movie, 100%, because I yeah. think I think he was just that good. And it's amazing to think that like he hadn't been doing a lot of work for the previous few years, uh, and certainly not starring work, which is kind of a crime uh, that it took until he was back in his mid-50s to start that again. And he's gone on, he's done quite a bit uh, since then. Um, and he's got a very commanding presence, but God, he's so good in this. His um, his last roles uh, were in like Breaking Bad and El Camino. Mm-hmm. Um, Better Call Saul, I think he shows up in there as well. And he's kind of the same. There's there's pieces of this character in that character, the guy yeah. who runs the vacuum shop, and he's very the when him at the beginning of this movie when he's first dealing with Ordell, and he's very no nonsense with him. Like, I go, oh, that's the vacuum guy from Breaking <laughs> Bad. That's the that's the fake ID guy. Um, but then, like, I I do love when he meets Jackie and he softens a lot, and you get to see this other side of him. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is so much of what he brought to this is a a complete three sixty version of what could have been a really one note or two note character. You know? Yeah. Well, you know it. Him and Pam Greer get the most to explore um, and kind of grow, and they they do feel like real people. You see multiple sides of yeah. them. Um, I was incredibly convinced, and wh- the whole scene where Jackie comes out of the um, out of the dressing room, and she's yeah. nervous, and she pays for the suit, and she's and that's that long tracking shot as she's going so through good. the mall. Yes. Is so good, and I was so convinced. I'm like, wait, why? What's what's happening? What's going? Why did she leave the bag there? Nobody came. Like, I'm confused as to what's going on. This first time I'm watching it, right up until the point where she finds him, and then I realized, oh, oh, she's playing her part. Right. Oh, that's so good. So it's really great. Yeah. You know, and and what it allows is it allows you to have when when your main characters are so well fleshed out you can have an Ordell who's fairly, I don't want to call him one note, but he's not, there's not a lot of change in him because it doesn't need to be. Um, no, he's, he's, he's the bad guy the whole time. Yeah. The cops, like, um, you know, Michael Keaton and, uh, Michael Bowen, um, Dargis and Nicolette, Ray Nicolette, which yeah. I love the fact that, uh, Michael Keaton played Ray Nicolette again in out of sight. Yes. Out of sight. Yeah. And even though that was made by a different studio, Tarantino basically told Miramax, no, let him, let them have Keaton play Nicolette in that for basically for nothing. Um, they they kept they kept the Elmore Leonard universe intact by doing that, and I think I think it's all better for it because when he shows up in Out of Sight the next year, you go, "That's the guy. That's yep. I know that guy. I know that character already, and I know <laughs> what world we're playing in." Absolutely, but it allows them to be like you don't have to know a ton about them because you know so much about who they're dealing with, right? That it, it sort of lets that go, so and I and I liked that. I liked both um, the way that Keaton played Ray Nicolette, 
Um, and I liked but Michael Bowen as as Detective Dargus was just a douche. And for sure. And he's just, he's got that he's got that face you just want to punch. Like oh, ev- he's he's uh he's one hundred percent uh nineties cop. Like uh-huh. I love when they're when they're tailing the money and they <laughs> they're walking through it and I'm like, I've never seen two more obvious plainclothes cops in my life than these two clowns walking through the mall chasing <laughs> chasing That's... gun money. You know? Oh, it's great. so great. And uh, then he's also a, a breaking bad alum. I I didn't um oh, that's realize right. that until I looked him up. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, a lot of Breaking Bad people in this. Well, you know, the, the, they they uh, they can play that type, that that kind of world for sure. Yeah, uh, and and I would be remiss if I don't mention uh, Tommy Tiny Lister Jr., who has oh yeah his couple Winston. of scenes, but as Winston, I love that where it's like, who found you? I did. <laughs> like it's, it's Tommy. I mean so, Tommy Lister. Oh, I just saw him in uh, Universal Soldier a few weeks ago. When I was watching that one with uh, Nisbet, and uh, he just—he's one of those—you you know immediately who it is, even if you know you've him, never yeah. heard his name. You know, you know him. that guy, uh, and and he's great. And then Sid Hag is the judge. I was—I had Sid Hag in my notes too. As soon as he showed up, I'm like, "It's Captain Spaulding!" It I is. can't believe he's in this movie, man. <laughs> he, oh man, it, like that's such a fun moment because you're right. It is. It's Captain Spaulding, like. It's so weird to see Sid Haig as a judge. As a judge, yeah, it's wild. Like the the only moment, the, the, another moment in a movie that I can say had that same feel for me was the opening of Dogma and seeing George Carlin as a cardinal. Yeah, yeah. it's that same thing. It's like <laughs> this this doesn't look right, and yet I love it. <laughs> They're both done as I feel like as an intentional joke, as an oh. intentional miscast, but. I don't know. There's something more subtle about about this. Um, very, very much so. But, but it is because he does look kind of like an authority figure. But I'd be terrified of what sentence a judge who looked like Sid Haig was going <laughs> to hand to me. Like this guy could do anything. This oh, guy I looks love. Yeah, he's off center, man. But and yeah, so <laughs> great, so great to see him with that cameo in this. Yeah, and and just to, like he's on screen for not that long, but he's perfect because he just plays it straight down the line. Yep. He doesn't do anything yeah. weird. He doesn't do anything quirky. But, but I think that's that's what it is. George Carlin in Dogma is doing the George Carlin thing. Yeah. Sid Haig plays it straight, which makes it even better. It's like that Lifetime movie that Will Ferrell made. Yeah. Where where they, they never they never winked. They just they just played it straight, which mm-hmm. made it even funnier. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it's really uh, man, what a what a weird cameo, but it's so good. <laughs> it really, really is. I mean, this movie, like the cast just up and down was great. And then you got all your classic uh, Tarantino hallmarks. The music is just, oh, mwah, chef's kiss. Like every moment yeah. that needs music, he is one of those directors that knows the proper song to play to fit the mood he's trying to give you because he's got that, just like his knowledge of film is so insanely encyclopedic, and he can, you know, he can remind, remember all these obscure grindhouse, art house movies he saw because yeah. he spent. Same thing with music. He finds that song that you wouldn't ever think to 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 have in that moment, and it fits it perfectly. It just fits it like a glove. Whether it's this music playing in Ordell's car, or I love the scene in the record store, which was a total flashback for me 
to just like tower records and or or record, record stores store. like yeah. that. The tape, the the rows and rows of tapes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just seeing, watching him pick that one cassette tape out and buying that, and like the music Delphonics, that's playing yeah. there, and he's buying the Delphonics tape, but the music that's playing is so vastly different from what he's buying, and I kind of liked right. that that clash. I just oh all the way through. Tarantino. He's got a Johnny Cash song in here. Yep. He's got uh, a lot of seventies R and B and funk. It's it it is this weird mixture, and I think Tarantino always does that. He always has great soundtracks. You know whether it's like the Reservoir Dogs, uh, yep. you know with Stephen Wright uh, as the K, is it K Billy sounds of the seventies? Yep. You know interstitials, um, but the other. Uh, Death Proof is actually, it is my least favorite Tarantino movie, but it's probably my favorite Tarantino soundtrack. I freaking, I went out and bought that thing right away. It's all these deep cuts, a lot of them I had never heard before, and it is just this note-perfect album on its own. Like, it's, mm-hmm. and, and, but the way he mixes that in with that movie, even though that movie didn't lock in with me the same way, it, it just, the, the music is never off no the music is always fitting he 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 is a a unique talent in the way scorsese does the uh with like 70s music the way he Mm -hmm. is able to perfectly drop that into there there are some directors i think who just have this really unique talent for picking music and i think qt is one of those tarantino definitely scorsese's got that edgar wright knows how to pick the right song for the right moment um you know, we made an entire movie basically that was like that with yeah. Baby Driver. Yeah, about like, playlists. Yeah. Um, and and Tarantino, the thing that he does that I always like is he he flexes that muscle right off the bat. He starts you off whether it's Little Green Bag in the opening credits of Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir, or yeah. it's Miserloo to open up Pulp Fiction. Um, interestingly, this movie didn't have kind of a pre-credit sequence, uh, which was another thing he did differently for his third movie. Um, I kind of like that. There's no, there's nothing really before the credits, but then he opens this. Yeah. Yeah. And then he opens this one up with across 110th street and that song is so good. And then those, those opening credits are great because it's just Pam Greer on the moving sidewalk. (laughs) It's amazing. And it's, uh, it's the graduate, uh, uh, opening basically, but, but it's, it's looks more seventies and it, it, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant shot. And she's just, just save you know holding face and not you know and in that long take down the sidewalk it's it's amazing yeah and then to end to end the movie with the same song but now it's straight on with Pam Greer as she's driving and she starts she's slowly singing, it, yeah. singing along to it yeah it's just a great bookend uh to the movie this movie's fantastic i can't believe it took me this long to see it i don't know i don't have an excuse other than I just didn't, but I, I now can thank you for getting me to finally watch Jackie Brown because, damn it, this was good. That's uh, I I love introducing people to a movie that I love, and mm-hmm. I love it even more. The biggest compliment I get from that is when they say, "I'm so happy I watched this movie." So, like, I'm I'm glad you watched it, and that's what your whole show is about is is fixing those blind spots, man. Yep. So I'm glad. Uh, you know, don't feel bad about uh, the time you missed with this movie. Be happy that you have all this time to spend with it going forward. I do, and and I like it because I'm the same way. I love showing a movie that I I have a, a special place in my heart for to other people. 
Um, and I like the feeling of getting to see that and, and then having that conversation. That's, that's what I'd love about doing this is having this conversation with you and kind of watching your reactions as we talk about it. It's so good. And, and, and this was, this has quickly moved into a top three position for me in Tarantino's films. Now he's only got 10, so, but I, I like what I like about this movie was it gives you a lot of the same things that you get out of uh, a Pulp Fiction or a Reservoir Dogs type of his movie, but right. it does it in its in a different way, and it doesn't have to result or resort to um, the same levels of uh, of of shocking gore that um, that those right. do, which doesn't bother me, but it makes it a little more accessible to kind of some other people that I know. Um, which I think is kind of yeah. nice. And, and I just, it's, it's just crafted so well. This is, <coughs> it's hard for me to say this is Tarantino's best film because I think, but I think what you saw, he kind of came out of the gates pretty strong. Um, and he kept honing his craft. Yeah. Um, which is why I think like, I honestly think Inglorious Bastards for my money is probably the best distillation of what Tarantino is capable of. I think it's, I, I like that better than Django. Um, although I do have to say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is pretty damn good. Um, I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, it's just a little too inside baseball. I feel like that's a movie made for movie people, like people who work in Hollywood. Yeah. But I do, I do love that. I just rewatched that. I've been on a Tarantino tear for the last month. Uh, and I, I really like a lot of, a lot of uh, Once Upon a Time. I love Cliff Booth. I think that character is mm -hmm. amazing. Uh, but I'm right there with you with Inglorious Bastards. I think that and uh, The Hateful Eight are probably my two favorite. Um, I have a hard time picking an absolute favorite because this is right up there as well. I, th I think this is just such a unique... This is unlike anything uh, that he's done before or since it is kind of almost its own thing i think it's his most accessible movie to people who aren't tarantino people this is something i would say check this out it's straightforward it's a crime movie it's a lot of fun it's not too gory there's blood there's violence but it's not nobody's getting stabbed with an adrenaline needle you know like right or um, or oding on drugs or or getting shot right. you know excessively on camera um, I think also the, the straightforward nature of it, I think the linear storytelling is, is why yeah. it's more accessible. Um, cause there's only a little tiny bit of nonlinear overlapping and, and it works so well to tell what he's trying to tell at that moment. Um, right. that I think it, it's, it's great, but yeah, most accessible is probably, uh, the perfect way to describe that. And it's in, and you, as you had mentioned earlier, it's sort of that dark horse. It's that Tarantino film that's a lot better than people remember either <clears throat> either people are like me they didn't see it or they saw it once thought oh, it wasn't as good as pulp fiction and never revisited it and and if you're yeah. in either of those camps fix that watch the movie uh because i think you'll get a, quite a bit out of it and tarantino has said and because i was reading this and i kind of agree with it especially after the second viewing this is a movie that gets better as you watch it the more times sure. you see it, the more kind of things you notice and layers that get peeled back and, and just bits and parts and, and 
and I feel that way with Pulp Fiction. Like I get a little something different out of Pulp Fiction every time I watch it. This yeah. this is like that for me. I'm gonna enjoy coming back to this movie periodically and making it sort of part of a thing that I do where, cause I do enjoy rewatching Tarantino's films. Um, and this is going high on the list now of, uh, of I'm glad I'm, 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 I'm glad, uh, uh, you had that reaction to it. Um, I saw this movie, uh, just real quick. The, the first time I saw this movie, it had come and gone from theaters already. And, uh, where I was living in, uh, Northern Illinois, there's a place in DeKalb, Illinois called the Egyptian theater. And it has, uh, it shows like second run movies, sort of mm-hmm. like cult movies, like midnight movies. Yeah. Uh, and it has, and it's stage and it's also, uh, supposedly haunted. So they do ghost tours there. Check out the Egyptian if you're in Northern Illinois. Um, and I went and saw it there. So by the time you're seeing it there, you're seeing it with the cult fan base for this movie already. Yeah. This were people who saw it in the theater it left theater. It wasn't on video yet. Um, but these were people who wanted to see it again. So mm-hmm. you're seeing it. I saw the big Lebowski the same way. And so you're seeing this movie with fans of this movie. And, you know, in the same way that you're feeling right now, getting to see it and talk to a fan, you're seeing it with people who are like inviting you into their club and saying, you know, hoping you enjoy it with them. Yes. And it really is like, I think the best way to experience a movie like this, that has this sort of maybe isn't the most widely received, but does have this cult fan base is to have a fan of that movie, bring you into it and, and kind of like have some, let's have some fun with this thing together. And that's, that's great to, uh, to see you having that experience now. Is there a more Tarantino type of setting to watch a movie in than that? I mean, that no, feels like a, that's a Tarantino the only time theater. I've been able to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, no, that's I, I saw Pulp Fiction in the theaters uh, on the road show. Like, okay, he re, he toured it like ten years ago, um, and it came to our town, and a buddy of mine went and saw it, and it was like hardcore Pulp Fiction fans there. So, that, yeah, it is. It, yeah. it, it, it is for sure the way to see those movies. Like it's, it's similar to, so I didn't see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in its first run, but our local theater would do Friday night flicks for a long time. And they'd be, you know, 11 o'clock on a Friday night, 3.50 for yeah. a ticket. Um, and yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. they were doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that's when I finally got to see that. So it was the same thing. It was a late night crowd of a lot of, if you're going to that movie, you you're probably have seen it already. Uh, for a lot of yeah. people, and it was the perfect crowd to see that in. And man, it was... a lot of people smoking acid-dipped cigarettes in, in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> if they could still smoke in theaters, they would have been in in mine too. Uh, yeah, that's that. I can smell that theater right now. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's it. This this was a fun one. I I am really really glad that I got to see this, and now I can say I've seen all of Tarantino's movies, um, which is is good stuff. I do need to watch. At some point, I want to watch the extended Hateful Eight. I haven't done that yet, but that's like, uh, yeah, I've seen that. It's it's. I like that it's broken down into like TV episodes. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, something that I, I thought was smart. Uh, if you're going to make a, because that's like what four hours long or something. Uh, the extended cut is yeah yeah. Um, the the only thing I have I haven't seen uh the 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 re-edit of Kill Bill, um, where it's all put together in one oh, yeah, giant like that four either. hour it's like the whole bloody thing or something like that um 
But yeah, I own both those movies. I've just never watched them back to back because that is a marathon, man. Oof, boy, is it ever. Although I've done the um, I've done the six movie when it was still only six movie Star Wars marathon, and I've done a three a three movie extended Lord of the Rings marathon in a day. So Ugh. bed sores, man. <laughs> like... Yeah, I know. Well, one of those uh, I actually did the Lord of the Rings one. They didn't play the extended Return of the King, but it was in a theater. And uh, they did an all-day uh, marathon. And so I sat front row of the balcony of this theater watching those all day. Ooh, but balcony. I, nice. I, I was able to get up and, like, stretch my legs in between movies, so that helped. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for, for remembering that we had talked about uh, or that I had talked about not having seen this movie because this was perfect. And given how my last week has been, um, for those that don't know, I – dealt with COVID last week. I caught it uh, about a week ago and uh, put me down. Uh, I was down for the count for a while. So this was like the perfect thing to pull me back out of that um, was, was watching this movie. Uh, so thank you, Phil. Pam Greer is the cure for what ails you. <sighs> Boy, if, uh... if that ain't true. <laughs> that ain't true. I don't know what is. Um, That's great. I, I appreciate you. Uh, uh, Calling me in, man. Calling me off the bench. I was I was happy to watch this movie and to talk to you again. I, I love coming on your show, man. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. You're always welcome uh, anytime. And we, we definitely, it sounds like you've got a, a list going, which is perfect. Um, yep, so we'll, yep. uh, we'll figure out some more to do. Um, you do a show with your son. I um, do. Talking movies. What's that show? Where can people find that? That is called The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude, and you can get that wherever you get podcasts, and uh, also on YouTube. We have a YouTube component. Um, all the information is on philrude.com, links to all the episodes, uh, our anchor page. We are currently on hiatus that got... Uh, I had a I had a life-changing event uh, in the last month, and uh, it's it's pushed us back a little bit. But we are looking to be back in about two weeks. Excellent. So um, uh, that'll be our fourth season. In the meantime, if we're new to you, uh, please go check out our back catalog and um, and check out what we've been talking about. It's it's a lot of fun. I love podcasting with, with Austin. He and I have always talked movies, so we just do it in front of microphones now. And and look, if you enjoyed this conversation, you'll enjoy all of theirs because the show is great. You both are awesome. I've I've enjoyed having you on as a guest, and when I had you and Austin on, uh, is always a, a treat. Um, I, I have a ton of fun that. with it. I gotta actually talk to Austin at some point and get him back on too. You know where to find him, man. I uh, do. Get him, get him, shake him out of his uh, cave. Get him back on the on the mic in front of you. I will. I I should do that soon so he can get warmed up and get ready. I, uh, I asked him to uh, uh, come on with me tonight. He was uh, he was busy with. I, sh- I do short notice better than he does. Uh, you know, being <laughs> in his twenties and having a life and things like that. I, but, I remember. Uh, I vaguely remember what that's like. Vaguely remember that. It was, yeah, it was a while ago. Uh, if you enjoy this show and you want to catch it live while we record it and hang out in the chat room and be like Danny Ora and JF Debeau and Captain Temerity and uh, I saw Ace Tigress in there earlier. Um, you can do that typically Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time um, at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Uh, we're doing it on Monday tonight um, this week, but uh, I do this. Uh, I also do a show called um, 
Let's Watch Highlander. Uh, and we are just about to start season four of that. I'm excited um, because that's when the show got in. It's one of my favorite seasons of the show. And I love talking about that lore. It's just really fun. Uh, I do those on Tuesday nights. This show comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts. Um, if you do listen and you want to leave a rating and review, that helps out a ton. Uh, and I appreciate that. I also have, um, if you want to help support uh, me doing shows like this or game streams, or I'm going to be getting back into painting streams, I actually have right here, I finally opened the box, uh, my first set of Warhammer stuff. It is uh, the Corvus Cabal. Uh, these, little, these little guys are going to be fun to paint once I get them put together. Um, so I'm going to be building those on stream. I'll be painting those too. Uh, you can help support me at Kofi, ko-fi.com slash Travis or store.streamelements.com slash Travis. You can buy merchandise there with my goofy logo like you see on this hat. Um, I've got t-shirts and mouse pads and all sorts of silly stuff there. Um, but if you, if you can, uh, I appreciate it. If not, no, no worries. Um, just enjoy the shows because I do them because I love them. <clears throat> and, uh, next week I am talking with, um, Amy, AKA red fraggle. Uh, we are going to be talking about, uh, the apartment. It's going to be my second, um, my second movie from, uh, what's his name? uh, yes. But also, I'm trying to think of the director, um, Billy, uh, ah, it's a ta-ta. Billy Wilder. Wilder. Damn, wa- the only Billy that would be in my in my brain was Billy Holiday, and I'm like, it's not Billy Holiday. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, I Great could not. Great singer, just terrible filmmaker, though. I know, oh, just te- just awful. <laughs> no, uh, I, I've never seen The Apartment, and um, I, you know, Billy Wilder movies that I've watched, I've enjoyed, and I mean. You got you got your Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine. Uh, what's not to love? So I'm looking forward to that. I, I always enjoy kind of taking a step back into some older older Hollywood stuff. There's 1960, um, and uh, and and I'm I'm really uh, I'm really looking forward to this one. So that's gonna be next week um, coming up on this show. I've never and, seen that either. Maybe I'll watch along with you guys. Yeah, be I th- fun. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the last Billy Wilder movie I did was um, Sunset Boulevard last year. And whew, that one, I nice. I went into it with no idea what I was about to watch, and I came out of that with a huge love for that movie. So I'm, hope, awesome. I'm hopeful that uh, the apartment can do the same thing. Um, so come on back next week and find out. Uh, but until then, um, oh, and another thing that I wanted to mention. So I was part of a competition a couple of years ago called America's Next Top Podcaster. And if you're listening to this show and you're at all curious about it, or Phil, if you are at all interested in doing it, they are taking applications for season four right now. And I did want to mention that. It, it was a wonderful experience. I met so many people um, that I still work with to this day um, on a daily basis. Some great friends were made out of that. And it challenged me in a lot of different ways, and it made this show better. Um, so season four, whether you just want to listen to it, uh, is coming soon. Or if you want to participate, you can go to America's next top podcaster i think it's toppodcaster.com and um and actually uh apply to be on this season uh, america's next not top model i don't care about that america's next top podcaster.com you can go there and you can fill out the application you got till january 31st so you got about a week um from today a little over to uh 
to get involved in that if you want to, or just to um, get, uh, you know, get um, subscribed to it and listen when it comes out. It's it's a fun show. It's put on by uh, a man named Brian Ibbett. Um, he hosts it. Hammond Chamberlain is the producer. He's amazing. Everybody involved in that show is fantastic. And uh, and if you want to kind of get an idea of what it's like to be a podcaster in some way, um, it's a fun show to listen to. And if you are a podcaster and you've been doing a show for uh, for any length of time, uh, sign up. Danny Ora in our chat, by the way, uh, which is a name you hear me say a lot, she is the winner of the first ever America's Next Top Podcaster. So we have ANTP royalty in my chat on a weekly basis. So, yeah, uh, definitely check that out. Sirnex submitted an application. Good work. Good on you. Cool. Phil, Phil, I know a lot of people are involved in with uh, – uh, I'll, I'll shove Austin. I, man, I don't have the bandwidth for that. Uh, no, I know a ton of people who are involved with that. I know, you know, Amy and David, uh, mm-hmm. and a, a ton of contestants. I've known Hammond for years. Like there's some great people involved with that, that show. And, um, uh, whether you participate or listen, you kind of, it's super informative as far as like the technical aspects of making a podcast and the creative aspects of making a podcast. And there is a ton of content to sort through. Uh, you will get something from it. It's a it's a really cool show. Can't recommend it enough. Absolutely. So that is coming up uh, soon. You got till January thirty first if you want to apply. Um, and I highly recommend it. I can't say enough good things about about the experience of being on that show, as stressful as it was. Um, so. Until next week, and until uh, I get to watch The Apartment for the first time, Phil, thank you so much. And uh, everybody, enjoy your movies and be excellent to each other. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)